0: And now, do you like Prince movies?
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Do You Like Prince Movies? I'm Alex Papadimus.
2: I'm Wesley Morris. And this week we're going to talk about... We're going to have Dr. Bullet on, our favorite favorite, uh, child psychologist, to talk about Inside Out. And we're going to talk about Nina Simone. And first, Alex... We should talk about something else.
1: Are you that teddy bear who came alive? I am. That's me. Good eye. Good eye. I'm Dr. Danzer. Oh, cool.
0: <laughs> oh, me closer, Dr. Danzer.
1: <laughs> Whatever.
2: Oh, my God, Teddy. Look at this. It says, if we want to have a baby, you're going to have to prove you're a person in a court of law. This is a nightmare. Let's just get this out of the way, Alex. Let's do we it. We both last week saw a less than fine motion picture that I hated. And I'm assuming you hated it, too, because we came up briefly and you said something along the lines of, I hate this. <laughs> you were funnier about it because you're you.
1: I uh, yeah, I called you on the way back from I was on the way home from the screening. And I knew, I knew that you were seeing it th- that afternoon and I had seen it that night. Did we say the title yet? Do we say? What oh, it's Ted two. Ted two. Ted Two. Ted Two. the second film in the, the Ted cycle from Seth MacFarlane. Starring, written by, or co-written by, directed by, and with, as in the voice of Ted too, Uh, Ted also, Seth MacFarlane. uh, Yeah, I called you and I said, uh, yeah, we both we both learned a lot today because we we did. It was there were a lot of really important uh, messages that if if you had not somehow picked up those messages from years and years of life on Earth, you would have gotten them from Ted too. Um about uh, you know human rights and civil rights and all of those things. It is interesting. The tattoo, you know, the, the it it came out it sort of came out on a day that kind of cast its relevance into the the trash can in a kind of an awesome way, I thought. Yes. The one yes, thing that mean, it's that it's really wants a it wants a real like cuz like this movie is about, you know, for those of you who don't know, I think you, everybody knows, but it's about it um Ted has his his personhood and, and therefore his marriage to a human uh, denied by the government. They look into his case and they're like, you're a teddy bear and you can't marry a human woman. And, you know, so he goes all the you know, all the way to not the Supreme Court, I guess, but to a fairly high court. It's all in the Boston court system, right? Like it's still.
2: No, well, they moved to New York. Oh, okay. right? no,
1: that's right. That's right. They do. They travel yeah. to New York. That's why that that's the whole, you know, I think initially it was a road movie there was it it's, I think yeah. it's it's been said but then it kind of didn't work out that way and it's a you know it's a fairly uh it's it's almost like it can't even get the points for subtlety for not saying what it's really about because at some point like he just
2: but really though what is it about <laughs> this is the thing
1: well, like, it's about it's... something that is obvious to i think to to many people i here's the thing i do think that seth MacFarlane is presenting his audience with some new information in some ways
2: yeah, I was going to say like I think you're kind of underestimating that that there isn't an audience for this movie that that wouldn't make these relationships or they make these connections among these different ideas. Um I think my problem is the uh, the ideas I mean, for one thing, I think the ideas are kind of just sort of sloppily articulated and I mean, I think he's sort of assuming I think he's actually assuming that his audience is really smart and smart enough to understand what's going on so that he is actually dealing with current events yeah. and he's actually dealing with uh, the the questions of uh, anything from gay rights to to black civil rights to immigration to any number of things can pass through this this very wide berth that 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 is this this conceptual idea. Right. But you know, this being a Seth MacFarlane movie, I think there's a constant kind of insult to injury aspect to the, to the treatment of this idea that he thinks. And I think people who find this movie funny think they think this, that that's funny. Um, but I think that it's sort of mean spirited in a way that really made me angry. And, I don't. I don't necessarily. I don't go to movies to make to be made to feel good. But I also don't go to be made to feel bad about my actual personhood. I mean, for a movie about the the taking away of one teddy bear's personhood, the um the number of times black men's personhood is sort of mocked or reduced or you know, dismissed is. Is a problem. I mean, I feel like there's a real insecurity here that 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 drove me crazy, and I I don't know why this would be excusable under any circumstances.
1: Well, that's yeah, that's what's weird about it. I mean, yeah, the the, the sickle cell punchline up in, in there, the hilarious sickle cell joke that he throws in about the prevalence of, of uh, sickle and that cell. whole sequence is that... there
2: only to make that joke. <laughs>
1: It's well yeah well I mean arguably it's it, it lands on a joke about the Kardashians which is the the one group in America that you're you're still allowed to uh slander in that way. It's the you know you're still allowed to be racist against Kardashians um and everybody will clap for you. Yeah, I think the thing that bothered me about it was that it makes these it makes these points about civil rights and this is the thing that bothers me about his his TV shows too most of the the cartoons when he's yes, dealt with yes these various things, you know, because they do, you know, for, they do deal with, you know, various, you know, lesbian and gay and transgender issues, you know, and and, and in a positive way, ultimately, they always, you know, they always land on the square of, you know, tolerance and progressivism. And I feel like he, and I think he's basically said this, you know, he said like, you know, are we all know that we're not homophobic. And so therefore we can make any kind of jokes within that. So it's kind of like, and I I said this in the thing that I wrote about Mark Wahlberg, it's kind of like he put a hundred bucks in the swear jar by making this the point, by making the ultimate point of this movie, the thesis of this movie that, you know, gays are people too and deserve all the same rights as people. And then within that, then you can just go nuts after you've made that point. You know, and it's like it and ultimately you can go to the exact same place. You can go to the thing that like would, you know, would sound like homophobia if it came from a homophobe because like you're actually you're on the team. And it's like mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's you know, I don't know that you just get to say like, you know, I declare myself not homophobic and therefore I get to make all the, you know, the homophobic jokes. Right. That's the I thing mean, that bothered me about it is that it's. A, right. Well, I,
2: there's, there's there's no setup. There's no like ground laid for why this why anything that happens in this movie would be tolerable. And even if you did that, Alex, you still wouldn't be able to get away with the stuff in this. What a lot of the stuff in this movie is doing, like they're two separate problems, right? There's the there's the sort of like lack of intellectual sophistication to to, to lay out what the 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 both the thesis. Well, the thesis is laid out, but then the parameters of the thesis and how it applies more broadly. To society at large, which he's obviously thinking about, that's a little thin. And then in the process, you have all these ancillary jokes that repeatedly undermine mm-hmm. any sympathy you would have for a person who sympathizes with the oppressed and the potentially deported and the people for whom the law is set up to work against. You just... He's got two problems, one of which makes the other one Im- unbearable, even if it weren't a problem. Unbearable. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. And scene.
1: Uh, 2 is in theaters now. I'm sad
2: and unhappy. We now have on our phone our favorite. Medical professional, Dr. Ethel Bullet, calling from vacation this time. It's very exciting. Uh, welcome, Dr. Bullitt.
3: Good to be here. Thanks, guys. Uh,
2: I don't know. I was just, I, I, I saw Inside Out, and I thought, I loved it so much. I would love to know whether the things I loved about it were necessarily resonant with a medical professional a person who Mm -hmm. spends a lot of time talking to children about what's going on in their brains Mm -hmm. uh so i figured i'd i'd call you and we would talk to you about it
3: sounds good i'm so excited to talk about this movie
2: you were really excited you loved it
3: (laughs) (laughs) first of all i couldn't i couldn't wait for it to come out because i saw the previews for it and i was like oh my god they made a movie about my job that's so great um and then I saw it, and I was amazed by it. It was fantastic.
2: So, just to be clear, your act- i mean, what is your actual title? So, I'm a
3: child psychiatrist. Um, okay. So it means I'm a I'm a medical doctor. Um, so I went to medical school and all that, and then my specialty is psychiatry, and then I have an extra specialty in child and adolescent psychiatry. So, right. mental health. So yeah, the is last kids time.
2: Yeah, the last time we had you on, we were not talking about children at all. <laughs> no, not at all. We're talking about Walter White, so Yes. Um
3: not appropriate for kids.
2: So basically for people who have not seen this movie it's a, it's the story of a girl who lives in Minnesota whose father gets a new job in San Francisco she's 11 years old and she is going to be moved from there to San Francisco and is a little bit homesick about all the thing for for the things when she gets there that she left behind and at some point you realize that the movie is going to switch from this telling of this girl's fairly banal I miss where I came from story to the story of the emotions in her brain, trying to figure out what all these changes are going to, are going to mean for her and do for her and try to maintain some sense of order. Um, And what ensues once some things happen is that two of the emotions, joy played by Amy Poehler and sadness played by Phyllis Smith wind up in the outer reaches of 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 the of the girl whose name is Riley, her memory um I think that's pretty much right, and they have to get yeah. back to the to the what we're going to call the control panel to restore order because the presiding emotions are uh, anger, fear, and disgust and that's that appears to be a bad combination <laughs> to leave to leave on unregulated by, by at least joy and or sadness. Um, and I'm the one person who did not see this movie with a child. And Alex was also a pile of goop by the time it was over. By the what time was it problem? was
1: over, I was a pile of goop. Like when it started, yeah. I was <laughs> kind of, I think that I, I pretty much was on the verge of tears this entire time with actual tears, like at several different points. In that, I saw it with my daughter and my wife, and she was fine. She was she was chilling, eating popcorn. You know, she got to have Sprite. She doesn't get to have Sprite in her daily life, so she was really <laughs> excited about that. That was what was going on for her, and she was like, Fear is funny. You know, because she thought so Fear was her favorite character, because she thought he was hilarious and weird. And we are... <laughs> both my wife and I are just wrecked. We are just <laughs> wrecked from the beginning of it. It's just you know, which is which is you know as as it should be, I guess. And you know, I mean, I've had that experience in Pixar movies particularly before I totally had it in Up, that first, you know, 10 minutes of Up yeah. or whatever that is. That's just like it's, you know, just like a knife in the <laughs> gut. It's, it's it's horribly sad and you know, that's like but yeah, this was you know it was just one of those things where and I think we were both having the same experience. my wife and i you're just you're just sitting there thinking about the enormity of these feelings like what you know what the world is like for a kid, you know, especially yeah. like you know in those you know in those sort of you know difficult moments and everything, but yeah, and I still you know i i I said to Wesley when we were talking about it like I'm gonna make it through this segment talking about it, I'm gonna keep <laughs> it together but okay.
3: Yeah, I needed to go home and eat four pieces of chocolate immediately afterwards. Like, it, it took so much out of me watching this movie, not just as a a movie watcher or as a parent, but also as a child psychiatrist, where it sort of felt like, it felt like for the entirety of the movie, I was like, I was doing my job as I was watching it and, Mm -hmm. um, and also thinking about my patients. And then, you know, it was just, it was profound, profoundly meaningful to me.
2: Um, so when, when you say you were doing your job what is that what did what did that mean under those circumstances?
3: Well, it was sort of like watching a child suffer and wanting them to feel better and mm-hmm. trying to help them um, think their way out of the problem but also sort of come to terms with it um, and you know not to get too nerdy about you know too psychiatry nerdy about the film, but it was sort of like joy was one way, one method that we have of trying to heal people, which is called cognitive behavioral therapy, which mm-hmm. is sort of, you know, change the way you think will change the way you feel. So it's sort of like, let's be happy, happy, happy. Let's try to reframe everything into a positive way. Let's take these negative emotions and, and not let them really appear at all um, and, and just feel good. And And in fact, that actually has a ton of medical evidence to support it. Um, but then, you know, more old school psychiatrists would say, well, then, but, but you're not really being real then, you know, you're not really being authentic to your feelings. Um, and so at the very end of the movie where it's sort of like the, you know, sadness has, has really been the hero of the movie and allowing yourself to be sad and to cry and to be real about it is really what makes you well not just happy. So Mm -hmm. it was, it was phenomenal.
1: Right. Because in this, in the movie, what happens is that both joy and sadness are kind of taken off the board. They're off in the, you know, in, in the deep reaches of memory or whatever. And so Riley is kind of blanked out and she's just operating with these other three emotions.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Is there
3: any, you can sort of see that with depressed people, that it's not so much a feeling of just being sad. Um, You know, that sadness isn't necessarily the most prominent part of their depression. Um, so it was interesting to sort of see, you know, fear, disgust and and anger in the show.
1: Is there any one thing that I thought was really a, a cool way to visualize some of these things? And, you know, also when you think about it kind of moving is the, these uh, these cities that she that Riley has in her brain, these sort of, mm-hmm. you know, that become these ruined cities that collapse, you know, these sort of you know things that she's things that she's built that are the, you know, the aspects of herself. How much is this stuff based on, obviously the emotions are based on emotions, but like how is this drawing on any kind of, uh, you know, psychological theories or anything about like, or is that just the way that Pixar came up with to kind of visualize?
3: I think that's more sort of a way of Pixar came up with it to visualize. I thought it was brilliant though, that sort of, you know, that each person sort of has their core aspects of their personality. Um, And personality is like that, you know, where everybody sort of has a a different personality and, and your emotions and your experiences together, um, make up how your personality forms. And so, um, and that, that sort of the ruin of your personality sort of the ruin of the core of yourself, um, is sort of a significant problem that some people feel that they just don't feel like they have anything inside them anymore, um. And watching those ruins come down, that was what my got. I was just talking to my six-year-old about the movie, and I was sort of like, "What was the hardest part for you?" And he said it was when the uh, when the island of silliness uh, came crashing down. He really couldn't bear mm. that. But mm. Although,
2: yeah, there are a number of things like that in this go on, movie. Yeah. We're, we're like, well, you go on. I mean, I, I want to hear you talk.
3: Okay. Well, so I I have to. I actually have um. Uh, I would like to quote actually one of my patients who I was discussing this with um, who, you know, we were sort of talking about this movie. This is this is a, a young adult who's, um, who's going to be a medical professional someday and who was sort of saying, like, we know that this isn't, isn't really how our brain works inside, but it felt so right and felt so authentic that she almost sort of wondered is like, you know, right before somebody goes in the MRI machine, do all these little characters like hit the panic button and they go hide <laughs> away? And they put up a picture of the brain to just confuse us because they don't want to be seen. And I just thought that was so great. So. Yeah, this is this is what's really going on inside. Yeah.
1: I love also. I love the the glimpses that we get of other people's brains, where they yeah. where we all have we all have that. But then it's actually it's really it, it's it's one of the saddest things in the movie in some ways. Like when you actually stop to think about it, that when you see the parents' brains because there's the console, right? And it's kind of a, it's a panel of like, you know, of, of the, the different emotions, but different people are like in Riley's brain. Joy is in charge in some way. Right, She's right. running the show. Yeah. And then when you actually see, when you see that, the, like the dad's brain, it's anger is leading the panel and the mom's brain is sadness is leading the panel. Yeah. Like they're both that,
2: that heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're both trying to, you know, they're trying to, whether they know it or not, like they're trying to nurture joy in, in, their daughter but they're actually sort of they're they're coming at it from a different place you know the Mm -hmm. the captain kirk of that bridge you know is anger or sadness depending
2: right yeah Um, i you know go ahead yeah i was just going to say that i the thing i I just sort of i'm really curious about how pixar is able to do these things that are are so hard to put your finger on like why they work um Mm -hmm. and i think I would assume that you've seen most of these movies, and that that a lot of them sort of speak to you both as a as a woman and a mother, and as a as a, mm-hmm. as a professional. Um, and I was wondering if you had any sense of like what I mean in this particular movie. I think there's one thing that really, there's a lot of really great jokes in this movie, but there's one thing in particular that now I mean, you kind of can gloss over it a little bit, but it's so I think key for an adult anyway. To, to be moved by, and it's bing-bong? <laughs> yeah,
3: that's exactly what I was thinking, yes.
2: And just how, just the idea that you have these experiences and you make these relationships, and then just, just by being alive and, and living a life and building other experiences, you, you by, by the very nature of a storage facility have to push some things out. So that some experiences that were profound at the time, suddenly in the, in the world of this movie anyway, becomes somehow like or somewhat excremental. Um, and just that scene, you know, the, the scene where the thing happens to Bing Bong, it's just like, oh, uh, man.
3: Well, I mean, that's adulthood, right? You know, mm-hmm. sacrificing and giving things up. Um, and... You know, where, where Bing Bong essentially, he sacrifices himself. He commits suicide. Um, and he literally sees himself disappearing to save the child, to save Riley, whom he loves so much. Um, you know, I, I think that that was, that was heartbreaking. Um, but I think also sort of there was, there was, it was sort of sad to see the character do this. But yes, there was this whole other part of it where we as adults, you know, we, cherish our childhood memories so much, right? Because joy is in charge then usually, right? Badness isn't in charge. Anger is not in charge. Um, We, we recall childhood generally as being a happy time. Um, And to sort of say that you have to forget a truly happy experience that some of that is, is growing up. And I think that that's a a Pixar thing, right? Is Mm -hmm. giving up to grow up. And, I'm thinking of, like, the end of Toy Story, um, where Andy gives away his toys to the little girl. As I mean, I'm going to cheer up just thinking about that scene, right? Because, like, that was, that was like, Pixar all over it, where it's just so, you know, it, it it's a happy ending for kids, and it's so bittersweetly sad for adults. And that's what they just seem to get so right.
2: I was thinking about uh, the way that they... Uh, the way this company is not afraid of, of portraying death and like, or suggesting it um, or bringing characters right up to the, to the, to the edge of, of, of oblivion, <laughs> like that yeah. amazing sequence in toy story three where they wind up in that incinerator. Yeah. And I, it was a crazy, it was incredibly naive of me to think they'd actually go in, but the look of resignation on everybody's faces, like they just, each character is sort of, momentarily at peace with the idea that they might just die. Yeah. I'll never forget that. I remember I remember sitting there and just we- saying no, 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 no. Just weeping.
0: Because yeah. I honestly Cause he,
2: thought like they wouldn't have done it but the idea that they'd even flirt with doing it was was profound to me. Yeah. Well, that's what makes them better than other children's movies
3: is that they go to that edge. Right? Is that they're not afraid to make you really really sad um, my my sister called because she was on her way to see it with her kids and and her daughter is gets a little nervous sometimes but they were calling to ask if it was scary and so we said mm. no it's not scary but it's sad like it's it's really sad but then we said but don't worry it's a kids movie so you know it's going to have a happy ending um, mm. but it's it's mostly happy and that's and again that's what's so great about this movie is that it's not all happy 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 it's you know, it's making meaning through the sadness. Um, And, you know, not to sort of go on a a child psychiatry rant here, but this is where a lot of, a lot of, where we're getting really mixed up, I think, sometimes in how we're raising our children these days, Mm -hmm. um, in that the focus is on, I just want you to be happy. And there was a fantastic article in The Atlantic a couple years ago, which I think every parent should read, called, called How to Land Your Child in Therapy just are basically the idea that if we tell our kids that all we want is for them to be happy, then if they're sad, they've failed us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we, we're not giving them any freedom um, to be sad. And that, you know, life for so many thousands of years has just been about suffering and survival, and that if you manage to survive, you're like, woohoo, I'm excited, I'm alive, that's great. <laughs> and now we put this extra pressure on ourselves and our children that we're supposed to be happy that our life is not correct unless we're happy all the time um and so that's what i loved about this movie was that it was just like no it's it's not all about being happy about all the time it's about having moments of sadness being comforted getting through the hard times and making meaning out of it so that was that's, that's my little child psychiatry rant right there
1: yeah, it's a very Buddhist concept actually that you should you should live with the emotion. Don't try to don't try to suppress it. You know, don't but like like look at this. You know, live with the sadness and kind of just say you know also oh, there it is.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: You know what I do I don't have a uh, a child psychiatrist in in the family who I can call for this information. I find myself when i'm when i'm looking at when I'm deciding whether or not we're going to go see something you know just to check kind of or just to check what we're in for because I usually know i I look at like uh, common sense media I look at like the Christian sites that tell you mm-hmm. if there's scariness or violence or you know <laughs> smoking or anything like that because they have the best spoilers like they have the best information really? it's the most comprehensive yeah. You know, just I just want to see. You know, just like you know, does the what what conversation am I going to need to be prepared for? Perhaps.
2: Yeah, you know? I mean, when when I worked at the Globe, we had the family film goer column that would pretty much probably do this, the exact same thing, which is basically ruin movies for parents so that yeah. they wouldn't have to have a horrible car ride home.
1: I'm so Uh, opposed to these things in principle, but at the same time, it's just good to to know. Like, does the mom die? Does the dad die? Or do we have to talk about that? You know, like, whatever it is. Like, does somebody get eaten by a bear or turned into a bear or something, you know?
2: I find, though, that the answer to that question is invariably now going to be no. And one of the... I mean, and I was actually initially annoyed with this movie because I was afraid that for any number of reasons... It was pri. It was placing a premium. Is exactly. It was doing exactly what you said, Ethel. That that these movies, that movies in general, and the culture in general insists we do. And I thought it was placing a premium on joy and her her you know organizational skills and her pluck and her can do spirit. Um. And I was annoyed with sadness for like messing that up. <laughs> I was really annoyed with her. I'm like, stop touching things. What are you doing? <laughs> And it's clear, like there, there was, there's, for me, there was this great, exhilarating through the looking glass moment, where, you know, it's clear that that Joy is basically dragging sadness around, and she has to like, she's so dumpy and unhappy, and she's physically incapable of of going through this mission. And there's a there's this moment, like you know, toward past the halfway point when you realize. Not only that we're Joy, I mean, but it has to be Joy who realizes this. It can't just be me because I know, which is why I'm annoyed. Um, it has to be Joy who realizes, oh, wait a minute. Like, sadness is a really important part of this operation. And yeah. I, can't, I, can't, I can't get back to the control panel without her. And Riley isn't Riley without sadness, without sadness playing a major part. And I was afraid that all the emotions, the five emotions, would be would remain cordoned off unto themselves. And then there's that great moment when they each emotion begins; they touch an orb, so that each orb contains a little bit of of of, of at least some combination of the emotions.
1: hmm I mean, that you was, know, oh, that sorry. was just so perfect. Yeah. You kind of know, though. I I feel like the, the, they do telegraph in the sense that it's it's Amy Poehler and that's playing Joy, right? And that's always. It, it's the it's the Amy Poehler arc, you know. Right. It's the it's the Leslie Nope arc where she, yes, yes, her yes. her pluck and her you know like you know like relentless cheerfulness is is ultimately a good thing. But she always has to also within that she has to learn a lesson. She has to accept the you know the Ron Swanson ness into you know sort of of the you know his perspective as well. It's like you've been you know the, the people they do a good job of casting people you know, in the, in these things you know as the thing that they often are. You know that we or that we're familiar with. You know, for, mm-hmm. in other worlds, they're using that baggage to their advantage in this movie. Yeah, and
2: I think Phyllis Smith is is just great. I mean,
0: oh, she's lovely.
2: She, I, I, I. I mean, I guess it's the thing that Phyllis Smith is asked to do, but I mean, I don't think she's ever been asked to do it in this particular way, where there's an actual. She's, I mean, she's playing a person as opposed to a joke, um, right. which is what you think initially she is playing. But I mean, she's as much as you said. Doctor Bullet, like she's as much the hero of this movie as, as Joy is.
3: Yeah, that um, scene where she's comforting Bing Bong I found mm, was just mm-hmm. you know, that, that 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 was one of those scenes where I was like that's that's me that's my job at work sometimes is just to sit with somebody in their sadness and, and not try to make them feel better about it. And just to to sit and think about how sad things are sometimes. And and that you can't change that.
1: Right. So you're dealing Not mostly. A downer, with... but... No, I mean, <laughs> that's life. that is, I don't know how, I don't know how old, you know, your, your patients tend to be. Is this the kind of thing that you see yourself that you, that, you know, as a way of talking about these feelings? Like, I don't know if you're dealing with adolescents or like, you know, if it's like, I feel like with young children, you could almost bring this up, you know, some of these, some of these concepts. It might, this might be a way to sort of, you know, visualize and discuss some of these things.
3: I think this. I think this film is great for all ages. My practice is mostly teenagers and young adults right now, just because it's with having young children of my own. It was too weird to see young children in my practice. Yeah. Um So that was sort of a, a personal decision for now. But um, but I've already. I swear I've talked about this movie with a lot of my patients. And I was at a conference um, on a, a specific kind of therapy called internal family systems therapy, where you're sort of you actually like try to talk to various parts of yourself and sort of externalize them. Um, and they use the Clifton movie as a teaching tool. Um, so I, I actually think that this has, you know, has incredible potential for teaching. And I think that, you know, when I was, when I was seeing the previews, um, there's just that one scene of Riley on the floor with her parents cuddling her and holding her, um, and I found that, it turns out that that's at the end of the movie when, you know, when everything's better at that point. But I thought that that was just so beautifully affecting, this idea that, you know, our child is suffering and we can't make her feel better. And the the profound pain that that gives to parents, um, I sort of want, that's, I want every parent to see that little bit, just sort of to say, you know, you're not, you're not alone. This, has, this happens to other people, too. Right.
2: Are there other examples of movies that... um that that you would say are good in the way that something like Inside Out or uh, Toy Story Three or, or Up is good in terms of you know, the way it handles emotion and you know human, not human suffering, but you know the the complexity of of the human emotional range.
3: Oh, like Little Little Miss Sunshine. That's not so much for kids, but. Um that's one that I think sort of gets it right that it's not, you know, that when we, when we think of, you know, mental illness and cinema, sometimes we think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, and and (laughs) let's think about, let's think about, you know, real things happening to real people. So um, I like Little Miss Sunshine for that reason. And I don't know, I don't know what else for, for kids, but I feel like, you know, Pixar in general, you know, somebody says, you know, the Pixar movies are just about, You know, take anything and give it feelings, right? Toy Story is, you know, know, what happens when toys have feelings, and and, um, Inside Out is what happens when feelings have feelings. You know, there's just always, always about the feelings.
1: Yeah, it does feel like they've kind of reached a point of, you know, this is the ultimate Pixar movie in some sense. That's, yeah, you've gone from cars with emotions. Right. Fish. (laughs) Fish, yes. It's like, what is the next challenge, like robots? Like, what's the next challenge of, like, the thing that has the least feelings?
2: Can I say it? It's going to, like, I can't say it. I can't say it. I can't say it. I'll just say it's an election year. They should think about doing that. Politicians. Let's do politicians.
1: (laughs) Pixar present Pixar's Guns. Oh, my God. It's the worst. I'm a terrible person that my mind goes there. (laughs) um thanks
2: for being with us dr bullet uh we'll be right back to talk about nina simone That was Nina Simone doing four women at the Harlem culture festival, in 1969. Um, one of the great astonishments in, 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 of, of all the move of all the songs she's recorded. That is one of the great, strange, um, powerful invocations of black history, black suffering, um, women suffering. um, it also is just beautiful uh, and happens to be an occasion to. Uh, there's a movie that's come out recently called What Happened, Miss Simone by Liz Garbus. It's a documentary that, that basically tries to explain Nina Simone's relationship to the civil rights movement and her relationship to herself, uh, her daughter, her husband, her country, her, her people, um, her struggles with all of those things. And her uh, incomparable astonishing musicianship um I mean the movie is it, i mean just for the for the for the footage alone is is worth seeing um there's a lot i mean the thing about Nina Simone I don't know if you have this Alex but I always feel like once a month I, there's some recording I didn't know she she'd made um or some live performance i just that that is that is surfaced or resurfaced to me um and i am reminded once again that if i'm making a list of five people that i i couldn't i couldn't live without whose music i couldn't live without she is she is forever and always in the top five
1: yeah it's a it's a deep catalog, and you're still finding things i I only just heard, which is weird because I really like this song, but I only just heard her version of uh, Baltimore, the Randy Ooh. Newman song Baltimore yeah. from Little Criminals, which was an album it's on and it's an on an album called Baltimore that she apparently does not or did not f- think very highly of, which I think I think she didn't like the arrangements or something like that. I think she did, it felt like she did not have the creative control over it that uh you know it, it, that a nina simone level talent likes to have over sure. the work um but it, it it's and it's kind of a reggae arrangement almost of it's leaning <laughs> yeah. on it lean it's sort of it's leaning on grace jones a little bit like it's getting to that it's you know before her time but uh you know it's it's getting to that place and it's i think that's a great song and i just happened to stumble across that while looking for the randy newman one um on some, I think, YouTube or something like that.
2: It's also interesting to me what... I mean, we should just say that, you know, the the Nina Simone... Uh, born... She was born in 1930... I should get the number right, but she died in 2003. I'll never forget that. Um, And had a sort of church upbringing, uh, was given an opportunity... To play piano, took it. Um, the the little scholarship fund that she had to to keep her doing that ran out. So she was forced to get a job. And at some point, 1933. I was going to guess 38. I'm glad I looked it up. Um, she was born in 1933 in uh, Tryon, North Carolina. And she was told to sing, and she never thought to sing, and she did. And one of the, I mean, it's such a funny story um, because you can hear in her voice, among all the other things that you're hearing, you're hearing a person who is not like a classically trained singer. You're not somebody, you're not hearing somebody who feels that they, it's not a natural singing voice, I guess is maybe the way to put it. She doesn't sound like anybody else and she's it's the voice of a person who feels like this is like she has to she has to sing and this is what it sounds like and you just have to deal with it and yeah. that to me is a really powerful that gives her voice a lot of the the moral authority and power that it has that it's not pretty
1: no and it's not it's it's weird because i think and i i think I'm certainly not the only person who had this experience I remember hearing her for the first time I remember somebody playing me I want a little sugar in my bowl and assuming that it mm-hmm. was a guy mm-hmm. that it was perhaps a sort of an, you know somewhat feminine sounding man mm-hmm. but like that sort of like and then the the, the the often I think your first experience with Nina Simone tends to be this kind of displacement where you have to sort of be like cock your head and be like oh wait and then it's you know someone kind of you know, hips you to what's actually going on there. Yeah. Um, which is, is you know, sort of that. I, I feel like that's always, you know, that's always amazing.
2: I had a different, my experience, my first experience with her. I mean, she was not somebody who was played in my house as a kid. Um, and it's funny cause when I discovered her, I was like, mom, <laughs> what's going on?
1: Where was this all my life? Where
2: was the, I found it in a used CD shop when I was, uh, maybe 17 years old. I had just been flipping through CDs and I saw the cover for, I saw that first of all, you get a double album for six bucks. Like I'm going to, I'm not putting this down even if it's terrible, but it happened to be this, this woman I'd never heard of before. I also proud and myself on like on being the sort of person who thought at 17 that I'd heard all the great women singers. So I thought, well, I mean, how good could she really be? I haven't heard of her. I grew up in a house where all the great women singers got played and I, I bought this record as a double album, "Wild as the Wind" and "High Priestess of Soul." Um, I don't know why they were released. It's like why you get two great albums for the price of less than one is beyond me. There used but to I be that, it. and that was I know.
1: A, it. Used to be a big part of your not to sidetrack out of this, but it used to be a big part of like for me, like you know, like tapes with two records on them or something, like, you know, mm-hmm. like things mm-hmm. that wouldn't fill out a CD. It's because when CDs are seventy-two minutes. And they right. would sort of stick them, you know, together. But I, I definitely remember getting, uh, you know, Harvest and After the Gold Rush together, which at is the a, same time, yeah, Jesus, yeah, okay. definitely. Like I don't, I don't know if it was a CD or what, I forget exactly how what format it was. It might have been cassette, honestly, but it, it doesn't matter. But yeah, that's you know.
2: Anyway, I got High Priestess of Soul uh, from I think that's like 1967, and um, Wild is the Wind, which was uh, the year before that. And my mind was blown. I couldn't, I had never heard anything that sounded like this. I mean, she was doing covers of things I knew, but she being the great arranger she was completely changed the way that the way what the song meant, the way (laughs) that just sort of the, the lyrical progressions and the scales. So that, you know, she was just playing it in, in a totally different key. And the key was Nina Simone. Um, I mean, she's covered every pretty much every great song there is um, from that, from, you know, the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, she took Revolution and did what I would say is the best arrangement of that song. Um, have you heard that? You've heard that, right? Wait, no. The Beatles? The Beatles Revolution, yeah. No. She, it's not the whole song. She takes... The she takes the you know what's gonna be all right. That part? Yes. And she takes that and puts mm-hmm. on this churchy thing at the end. Um which is also just great. But I think the the sort of beautiful thing about what she was able to do and the movie really gets into this the movie is sort of about her her intense relationship and fraught relationship with the civil rights movement and then her eventual unraveling for you know effort like mental health unraveling um, toward the end of her life but what she was able to do at the height of her powers which I would say probably stretched from the early 60s to the to the mid 70s was to bring that movement and that fight for equality into these songs that in some cases are kind of innocent of of the civil rights movement and she just made every single song and I think a lot of people feel this way. I don't know what I mean. I don't know. Can you, you What? what what you heard her sing like what besides the gender confusion which didn't last obviously like what else was going on for you like what was like did you have a chemical reaction to her the way I felt I did.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I still do. Yeah, you know, and it's it's and and in in a really interesting way because you know I think like, you're you're hearing somebody who is yeah I mean like when you talk about sort of you know making it her own I was just looking at the track listing for her uh, there's she you know she did a lot of like pop covers and things like that you know it's like, like I almost think that it's, it's really interesting to like Mr. Bojangles, Mm -hmm.
0: you know, and just
1: things that are not, and like, it's
2: a total indictment when she does it.
1: Yeah. It's really kind of a, you know, and like uh, all of that stuff. I mean, it's on, there's a record called, I'm sorry, it's called here comes the sun and it's her album. I was, I was trying to look up her, her uh, Beatles covers. Like, you know, like Mm -hmm. um, I was just listening to, I shall be released this morning, which is another you know the Dylan song. Um, That's not a sort of, you know, like, but it is interesting to hear her do these things that are these very light things. And like, she just, it's like, it's so heavy in, 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 her Oh hands. yeah. It's suddenly like it's a, you know, she's swinging an ax, even if it's an-
2: <laughs> angel of the morning, uh, just like a woman. I'm yeah. just trying to think of just some of the great, my way, her version of my way, her version of my way. I mean, uh, you know, as, as I, I think I, every time I hear that song, I think of Starley Kine's utter evisceration of it. Um, it, it's, that's the song, right? That she, there's a, this American life. It's episode, Sarah Val. Just, it's, it's Sarah Val. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah talking yeah, about
1: yeah, it, yeah. The, the, yeah. It's like this terrible Paul Anka song that, you know, uh, Sinatra did sort of, you know, like, you know, past, uh, the peak and like, basically it's Sarah Val talking before Sinatra's death about please when Sinatra dies at, at like anything, but please the play anything, but my way. Which is true, but Nina Simone's my way. And let's Pervert, just, yeah. yes, yes. We'll, we should, yeah. Well, let's, let's just drop a little bit of that in here.
0: And now, now the end is near, and so I got to face the final curtain. Curtain, friends, I'll say it clear and state my case, of which I'm certain. i believe A life that's full I've traveled each And every highway And more Much more than this I did it my way
2: That song, that album, I think, is from 71. And it's the last song on the album. And it it is... A real, I mean, it it really sort of responds to the pressure that was on her to 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 have a particular role of participation in the civil rights movement. She was, she had a, she had a, an uneasy relationship with the leaders. Um, She was just volatile, and she, you know, was is uncomfortable with the direction that the country was going in as she was with things that the that the movement and and certain leaders were doing and not doing. She didn't think change was happening fast enough. She didn't you know, she didn't feel that nonviolence was necessarily the best way to go. Yeah, there's that great Um, moment
1: in the documentary where it's, you know, she she talks about I think I think it's her talking about it um going up to martin luther king and being like dr king i'm not nonviolent," and martin luther king being martin luther king is like that's okay Um uh, right. but like yeah that she would that she would say that and i was reading something else about uh the writing of mississippi goddamn which is a big part of the documentary that that song which she right. wrote after uh you know the the the, uh, the four little girls were killed in the church bombing um and it talks about her. There's a you know a passage. I, I forget where it comes from, but um, that her first reaction when this happened was to start making a pistol out of tools that she had around right. the house. She tried to make. She started trying to fabricate a weapon, and then instead wrote this song. It's like too perfect a metaphor,
2: yeah. You know yeah. for what yeah. that
1: is because then you hear her singing the song, which is you know and like I, I love in the documentary where uh, they have Dick Gregory talking about it and he points out that like there's no there's no way that a black man at the time that of the mm-hmm. song could have sung this song mm-hmm. and that, that there was something about the you know somehow the fact that it was coming from a woman made it the, the, it was the only thing that you know made it you know palatable to white america in any way which is interesting too because you think about it like you could argue that in 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 hip hop there is now a space for black men to say that there are not a lot of women sort of working at the edge that she was working at right now. Mm-hmm. Like we we're gonna, mm-hmm. you know, we can talk about inheritors and there's a lot of because of I tried movie. to
2: list them. I only I came up with three 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 goodish ones: mm-hmm. um, Lauren Hill, Annie Lennox, and uh, who's the third person I put on the list? Uh, Annie Lennox um, is a good one. That's a There's a third one and now I can't remember who Oh, Fiona Apple yeah those are my three I mean but obviously none of those people is is Nina Simone but they all come from the Nina Simone tradition of I mean Annie Lennox I mean they Annie Lennox and they all have great voices but they're not the thing that makes them all unique as singers is a they all have deep voices they all don't have a lot of range in their voices and but each of them leaves that range and why and this is what Nina Simone does when they when they leave that lower register is when that's when the pain sort of sets in a little bit or that's when you hear the pain because they you know the voices crack a little bit or you're not they don't always get to the note but they they don't need to get to the note the attempt to get there is enough um and but none of those people are doing politically what what nina simone did with her voice
1: yeah i mean that's the interesting yeah because i mean lauren hill there's there's a nina simone tribute album coming out with lauren hill doing six nina simone songs it's a you know mm-hmm. full-length album and she's but but she's sort of the featured performer she's the first like six tracks as she should be like that. as she should be certainly and let you know there's you know and you hear her like you know she she raps over you know ain't got no i got life you know and it's mm-hmm. it, it it's almost it, it kind of literalizes something that you didn't need to have literalized like if you've ever heard that uh Lauren Hill unplugged that she did there's enough Nina Simone in that without her having to cover or sample or any anything along those lines but it's it it's weird because it's not the connection there's not a sort of there. There is obviously still there are still people struggling for civil rights all over the world, but there, I, I feel like there's not as much of a pop cultural civil rights movement to plug into right, for someone right. who wants to do that at this at this point for someone like and, Lauren Hill or you know. So it becomes about Lauren Hill right. rather than in, in in the same way that you know. I mean, it's it's interesting to see like it's it's generational. To, like a lot of the press around this, people have brought up Azalea Banks not mm. as an aesthetic mm. inheritor necessarily no,
2: but as a political inheritor
1: almost but the politics yes. are like my record deal sucks and like i right wanna, right you know. right it's
2: super myopic and self-serving yes it's just but narrow is, i mean
1: it's not you know i don't want to yeah i don't want to down it necessarily as a you know, no anything.
2: but i but, mean it's not focused on the it's not focused out it's a more focused in
1: yeah and you could just argue that it's just there's so there's less latitude even to you know to maneuver in i don't know it's it's interesting though because there's not you know, and I was going through samples and, you know, things that, you know, songs that have, you know, bitten things, uh, you know, of Nina Simone. So there's not nobody is because uh, I was thinking about this Lauren Hill song, which is sort of interesting and programmatic at the same time. And like, you know, is there some sort of I was like, what's the real sort of great hip hop use of her if it's not if it's not this? Like, is there anything it's, that has plugged into it? Do
2: you have an answer?
1: I I mean, look, I have an answer. Cause Cause
2: there's cause, two I can think of.
1: I, I you could say you could say uh, get by the Talib Quali song that samples Sinnerman, but that's not that's really just
2: well, Sinnerman is the one everybody uses.
1: Yeah, because O Timbaland is, used it. Yeah, yeah. You know, literally,
2: I, but you know,
1: yeah, and that's a cool sounding song, but yes. it's like the easiest thing to sort of to mm-hmm, you know to sample. Mm-hmm. And there's like you know I was, I was li- there's like a you know and it's it's where I was thinking about this thing about you know men versus women and getting to express things in that way, because there's a, um, there's a Lil Wayne song that samples feeling good as well. And it's just like, it's just them just talking about how cool they are and all the drugs that they sell and all that. And it's just, it's like, you just hear somebody like he, you know, it's like Lil Wayne, it's never even occurred to Lil Wayne that Lil Wayne's not free in that moment. You know, he's flying. Right. Um, I'm going to say that it's blood on the leaves, which is a controversial choice in some ways. But I have an argument for Blood on the Leaves.
2: I have not heard it, and I'm I'm open to I'm open to it because I I kind of I object to the incongruity of that song, obviously. I think that's the problem with the the sample is that it it just bear, to me bears no relation on the recorded version of that song. When you see him do it live, it's a different story. Yeah. Like he has found a way to make the whole thing work and it's it's devastating. But as a on on um, as a recording, you know on that on that album uh, on Jesus, it's just it it doesn't really work for me. It is kind of a problem.
1: Right? You need the isn't that the one? He you, has a Steve McQueen. Yes, backdrop. you need the tree. Yeah. You
2: need the tree, and the tree sort of you need the Steve McQueen piece to play to 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 be sitting behind him, or anything that's like that. It doesn't even have to be that specific artwork. It could be any production design, but, um, I mean, I think that Kanye is his thoughtfulness and his carefulness after the fact, I thought were touching, but I found the initial use of, of that song a little bit troublesome (laughs) to say the least.
1: Sure. Uh, But anyway, what's your defense? Well, I mean, for those who don't, it's a, a song about lynching, obviously first sung by Billie Holiday or popularized, I guess. Strange fruit. Strange fruit is, is. and it's right. a sample. Yes. The, you know, the blood on the leaves is, a, you know, that that line. Obviously, it's. A, but in the Kanye song, he samples the Nina Simone version. I I, I listen to it again because I I totally know. I feel like we've had this conversation before in some ways, or you know, maybe it wasn't on this show. But like, it, I really like the way that they use that that he used that musically in there, but I've come around to sort of feel like I totally get the argument because that song is, that song is like, it's about, I think it's about being with Kim at a Laker game and like seeing Amber Rose. Like it's really the most sort of, it's a very kind of talk about myopic. Yes. You know, and it's almost, you know, you could say like that it's, it, it it is irresponsible or at least like in poor taste to invoke this song with it, to, to invoke strange fruit in the context of that. But it, Having listened to it a bunch of times and sort of just responding to that song just sort of musically, sonically, like if I didn't speak English, being like one of my favorite songs Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. Yeezus. That's a really good –
2: that's a very good way of thinking
1: about it. It's musically really powerful, but there's something about – I've come around to – I now think – thinking about it also in the context of that record and in the context of what that record is saying about the – Omnipresence of racism, even in the life of someone like Kanye West, who's in you know who's in Kanye's position, and that's a very sort of, you know sort of nuanced treatment in of mm-hmm. what that what that's like for him and sort and saying like the, we know that this this has not gone anywhere. This force in American life has not gone anywhere because I'm Kanye West and I'm still dealing with it. So imagine what you know like how much that exists for other people. I think there's just something about that song where it's as if the, you know, he's he's in the life of Kanye West, and yet that tree suddenly like th- like the curtain parts and like it's still there. It's like an apparition. It's sort oh, of like when right. it appears you within win. that. I'm just saying. Though, I don't. I'm not trying to win. I'm not I trying know, to win. I'm just but I I,
2: I. I That's very persuasive. That's very persuasive.
1: It's as if like he sort of. It's as if he looks up and hallucinates the tree in the middle of whatever else is going on because you can't. I think the irreducibility of Strange Fruit sort of that that's what the the power is there that that's But can I ask
2: that. you a question? Sure. Couldn't any black artist just play that song and you could you could that your theory which I think is very good also apply to anything?
1: What do you mean like to sample Strange Fruit or
2: Yeah, if like Omarion came out with a song <laughs> that was like baby your ass is fly. And strange fruit was playing in the background, like. Could-
1: <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Nobody's nobody was like you know doing their like like I'm gonna take the 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 blood on the leaves instrumental and do my uh, for to my knowledge I haven't heard anybody sort of you know go over that with with whatever their thing is. Um, no, yeah, Just, sure, it's true. It's it's true, and I don't I don't even know necessarily other than the fact that Kanye made that track, you know, like, or you know Kanye and you know whoever else I forget who's the, the Hudson Mohawk thing too. I don't know. Uh, I, other than other than that yeah i don't know you're you're totally you're, you're right it, it works for me i've figured out a way that it works it may be a no prize way of figuring out why it works for me i may be sort of like you know reverse engineering a theory about it because i like the song and the way that it works and i want to sort of i want to kind of contain the problematicness of that and it's, it's probably true. Right.
2: that's fair i just i mean and i'm not even disagreeing with you as i said i'm persuaded i'm also just wondering about its about its wider applicability.
1: No, it's true. I think the thing though is that like that's the only one that I really could come up with, thinking about the song, the samples that I know of, and the you know kind of going through some listings of things it, it, that seems to plug into any kind of Nina Simone ness about it. You know, it's like that Lil mm-hmm. Wayne song. She's just kind of it's just a little. It could be anybody. It's just a little kind of high pitched. You know, it's just a, vo- it's I just also- a
2: vocal. I wonder if there I mean again I mean we're talking about irreducibility, I mean she is irreducible. I think the problem the the problem that if you're sampling her, you have and the I mean here's the the audacious thing about blood on the leaves is that he he even he just includes her at all. Do you know what I mean? It's very safe to take sinnerman and just take that riff and just use it and use it and use it and use it. I find that that Timberland song to be like unbearable for. For for it's for how for the way in which it reduces her and that song and also the song isn't I mean it's a totally self-serving song and doesn't make any sense but I also think there's a way in which she is one of those people and Aretha Franklin's another one and I sort of hold them in, in uh, on opposite ends of my of my brain and maybe we should talk about this a little bit before we go. She I always found it as a person who discovered Nina Simone well after I had, you know, grown up in a house with Aretha Franklin. I found whenever Nina Simone covered an Aretha Franklin song, I was like, Why would you do that? <laughs> Nina know why? Why would you do that?
1: Well, I mean she talked about it. Like she wants you know yes. she wanted she didn't want to be Aretha Franklin, but she wanted that's the paradox of this movie in some ways is that she wanted to be she did not want to blunt any of her political views or any of you know she wanted to be outspoken she wanted to be Nina Simone but she also wanted an Aretha Franklin like career,
2: right? And and, and
1: refused and, to settle refused to accept that those two things were counter indicated you know like that you couldn't yes. do both,
2: right? And that was and that was sort of the that was. Maybe it's sort of the crux of her of of the kind of cognitive dissonance she was always up against. Um, I would say that I came around on the Aretha Franklin thing mostly because I was young and stupid, but also because you know I mean Aretha Franklin for me was church, and I I didn't know about this other religion. And then once I started going to the church church of Nina Simone, you know I was able to hold both things in my brain. But I also, and I don't know if other Black people have felt this way when they have discovered Nina Simone. If depending on when you've discovered her, but the thing that like called me to her, I listened to that. I listened to that double record when I got home and I put on a set of headphones because I was about to go to college. Um, this is the the summer before my freshman year of college, and I went home and I put on. I got a stereo for my graduation as a graduation gift, and um, I put in the CD, put in my headphones, laid on my bed, and. I just wept. And part of the reason I wept was because I was mad at my mom. She never told me, about the mom. And I was also, I wept because I had never heard anything that sounded so black. It was just, I mean, and it felt as black as I felt. And it felt as black as I felt in a way that I had never expressed feeling black like that before. All of the of the sort of joy and pain and sadness and frustration and bewilderment and... Elation, all of that is in that music. And the idea that maybe I couldn't have handled it when I was eight, who can say? But as a teenager about to go off to, you know, an Ivy League school, there was something about there's just something about that listening to those two records they're also just phenomenal records by the way if you don't have either of those i would say start there and then pastel blues is the other one i'd say you should get And any live recording i mean really just binding Nina Simone record you can't go wrong but there was something she and james Baldwin are i mean and they are sort of not only artistically aligned but they are they had a relationship um socially and, and and politically and artistically too um I don't know. I just was I was kind of I was just devastated by by the realization that, that that is that was what I was getting out of this music.
1: Has there been anything since then that you've heard that has oh hit that same well in some way? That's a great question, Alex.
2: Um no. Not in the way that
1: she does. I guess you can it's, only it's the there's a first. It time can
2: only happen once, that is true. I mean I no, I mean It's funny because I don't get Curtis Mayfield the way other people get Curtis Mayfield. I mean, I like Curtis Mayfield, but I don't get that. There's no pain in... I mean, the pain in him is different. And even when Aretha does like the Sparkle soundtrack, I don't have that... Those songs are, first of all, they're happier than, than anything Nina Simone records, but... No, there's nobody whose voice I mean, there are a lot of people whose voices do amazing things, obviously, but for, for and some for some people it's like, you know, Muddy Waters is my guy. You know? Um, and Wolf is my guy. For 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 the expression of that kind of blackness. For me, it was Nina Simone. Um she was the person who did that for me. It wasn't Bessie Smith or or any of the great blues musicians. I mean, her blues was 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 the one that I connected with the the strongest. Also, because of the interpretation too. I think she was making songs that had no race black. Um, and that and that sort of blackening was was also powerful to me. It just like I guess I didn't really understand that there weren't any parameters on art in some ways too, and that that interpretation was a huge part of songsmanship. And I guess I should have known. I grew up in a house where a lot of French Sinatra got played. Um. But her arrangements really, really spoke to me.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting talking about interpretation. I think that's, you know, I, the one thing that I, I went back and uh, looked at before coming in here was, and, and, and he got he got dinged for this really hard and a lot of people really objected to it. But uh, the thing that Hilton Niles wrote a few years ago.
2: Oh, the P.J. Harvey thing about yeah. P.J. Harvey, the putting down of all these great black women to lift P.J. Harvey up?
1: Yeah. I,
2: I, one he, of the w- wrongest <laughs> pieces of rock criticism ever written.
1: And yet, I mean, you can sort of... Uh, like, Of course, the tradition is there. Yeah. I and mean, we're talking it's about... It's just it, he did it wrong. Yeah. No, it's it was it, it was an oddly... It was an odd way to approach it. Like, he's written other things because I, I went looking for this and I found some other thing that he had written about Nina Simone that was much more it sort of it, it was there it, it was there it was you know celebratory of her and yet it sort of it's, it's, I, it's I i recommend i recommend reading that the one thing that, you know that that's true about that and we were talking about inheritors it's like there's not there's no one that you can really draw the, the, the you know the clear line to except in those other traditions mainly because in in rock, there's always going to be like the idea of a PJ Harvey is sort of, you know, like rock is always pretty much going to be into that. There's a sort of a, you know, reward structure for that in that world, you know, and there's not really like right. there's not like the lesson of Nina Simone is that you you will not, you know, don't do it that way, kid. You'll never make a dime. You know, it's like that's the that's the sad thing about, you know, about this movie is that, you know, there's that moment at the end where she says, you know, I I, I would have been much happier had I been a classical pianist. I'm not very happy now.
2: Right. I mean, and she, I mean, she took up the cause of Michael Jackson toward the end. Did she? Um, Yeah. Oh yeah. There was a whole thing in like 1990, in in like the mid nineties. She, she had some very controversial and complicated feelings about Michael Jackson. Um, And I think she was, I mean, I don't remember the context now, but um she she said some things and I, I'm now not gonna remember, but I remember she was a big she had some very deep, complicated thoughts about about Michael Jackson.
1: Um and about and his, it, the way he was being treated at that time by the, yes, the media in yes. the world and-
2: well, I mean about his blackness and about like what happens to him. Um and she loved Michael Jackson and um she she met him and I mean, I think that the gist of what she was saying was like, don't let them change you. You know, she saw she'd been in the music business for a minute, you know, and she saw that he his he was changing and she just said, you know, and this mean Simone if for anybody who hasn't seen her is like a dark skinned woman with, you know, all natural features.
1: Right. That's why everybody and, is sort of up in arms about her being played sigh in a movie by Zoe Saldana. There's this embattled... Is that still
2: happening, by the way? Yeah,
1: no. Well, it's not. I mean, there's some, there's some whole. I, this, it's probably going to be. The, there's some legal wrangling, I guess, over. You know, like, I think the the producers have taken it away from the director or something, and there's a lawsuit going on. Uh, it's not because of the controversy about. Okay, that's fine. Zoe Saldana. That's that's not what's what's scuttling this movie. Something else is, but you see the pictures. If you look at at Nina Simone, who is strikingly beautiful, and then you look at Zoe Saldana, who's also very beautiful, but Zoe Saldana dressed up as Nina Simone looks ridiculous.
2: That's bad. Um, Here's the quote, then we're going to go to the jam. Um, I distinctly remember meeting Michael on a plane many years ago when he was little, and I said to him, don't let them change you. You're black and you're beautiful, but of course he was influenced by his family and everybody else, and I I don't mind if you say this. She's talking to... um, um, Alison Powell. Um, and she says, I don't mind if you say this. Uh, but of course he was influenced. I think that this person who was responsible for Michael's tragedy is Quincy Jones. Um, you can quote me. And the woman asks, is res- How, how is he responsible? And Nina Simone says it was Quincy who married a girl from Sweden. And with Quincy, with all of them, White women, poor little Michael didn't know what to do. Michael needed somebody to emulate and I don't think he did. I think he did everything Quincy told him to do. That is what I believe. I mean, she didn't really go on, but she made some comments from there about interracial marriage. um, And, and a bunch, I mean, it was a very controversial interview and it's a great interview because she is just, just speaking her truth. And a lot of what she says is actually true. Um, Anyway, I'll put a link to it
1: on the show page.
2: Jam of the week. We'll be right back.
1: Chris Squire from Yes passed away on Saturday. He was the bass player from Yes. He was one of the, certainly one of the great bass players of prog rock. And I would argue one of the great rock bass players of all time. Um, I've been sort of driving around listening to Yes again, as as I guess people used to do in the 70s. Uh, I went through a yes phase. I don't know if you ever had a prog rock phase, Leslie. Um, I don't know if you ever.
2: I wouldn't call it a phase. I was. I mean, I discovered Nina Simone late. I discovered Genesis late. Yeah. And I'm sure this is the part where like you hang up. But I no. mean, I You know they were they were, they were good.
1: Those early Genesis um, records. Yes. Slay. They're really okay. really good. I went through a phase basically of buying records like buying dollar records based on covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, album I did covers, that. not co- cover art. I mean, not, you know, what songs were covered. Yeah. Um, and I, it was a joke at first. And I was just like, I need to own these Yes records because they're the, 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 these Roger Dean album covers that are very, you know, these these fantasy art cities in the sky and, you know, very hobbity kind of things. And like, it was almost like I, I was trying to, I was buying them ironically because I thought of it as so sort of antithetical to what I was actually interested in. Mm. And what I thought was cool, and so it's you know because Prague and punk have always been the, these you know diametric opposites in the you know in the in the spectrum, and it's like you either liked one or the other, and you're sort of, you know, supposed to like. There's that moment in like the you know the PBS history of rock and roll documentary where it cuts from Rick Wakeman to you know I, I forget it's not Jonathan Richmond, it's probably the Sex Pistols or something like that. It's like it's they're trying to you know establish these things as you know as a as a, a black and white issue but and i think so i think it was a joke at first but then i kind of got to really you know at the same time like i was like sort of getting into jazz i was sort of getting into you know experimental kinds of things and like i started to you know like some of those categories started to to break down for me the one that really broke it down though was a song called the the fish parentheses chandelaria primatoris which is a chris squire song i think it's on relayer by yes and uh, it's basically—it so- sounds like tortoise. It sounds like pr- uh, post-rock. If you're, you know, all that sort of—it sounds like it could be could have come out on Thrill Jockey in you know 1996. Um, but that's not what we're going to play here. The jam of the week is a song called "Part of the Sunrise." Familiar? If you saw Buffalo '66, can't really talk about the context of it in Buffalo '66. Unless- oh
2: my God, you're a bad man. Uh, <laughs> okay. That's our show this week. Alex, great talking to you always. Thanks Wesley. for Dr. Bullet coming in.
1: Thank you very uh, much. Dr. Bullet, thanks, Joe Fuentes. Thank you, David Jacoby. Thank you, Vincent Gallo.
2: Well, thank you, Alex, for picking this. Let's go so I can listen to the rest of it.
1: It's right out. Rest in power, Chris Squire. See you guys next week.
0: Listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to Grantland.com and click on podcasts.